I know that many of you are confused about exactly why the Silicon Valley Bank went bust. Well, you've come to the right place because this is a political commentary podcast, so the fact that I don't understand this subject at all won't stop me from explaining it to you. The first thing you have to understand is that Democrats believe in socialism. Socialism is an economic system in which powerful people help the poor by taking money from the middle class and giving it to the rich so the rich will give the powerful people more power to help the poor by taking money from the middle class to give to the rich. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, the powerful Democrats needed more money to give to the rich to get more power to help the poor. So they printed worthless pieces of paper and called them dollars and gave them to the poor who passed them on to the rich in return for Hulu subscriptions and lawn chairs. The rich said, hooray, now we have worthless dollar papers. We will put them in bonds and useless green nonsense businesses where they will magically turn into money. They also donated millions to a gay pride organization who used the millions to buy some rainbow-colored pencils and a vacation for 12 in Thailand. Then came inflation, which was transitory, which means permanent. At this point, people panicked, and there was a run on the bank, like in that movie, It's a Wonderful Life. In fact, just like in It's a Wonderful Life, the bank manager came out to the panicked people and said, you can't have your money because your money is in that guy's house, and your money is in this guy's house, and your money is in another guy's house because those three guys are crooks and stole all your money. Then the bank manager gave everyone a free rainbow pencil. Acting quickly to reassure the public, President and venal houseplant Joe Biden shuffled slowly to a podium with his eyes glazed and his mouth hanging open and made a slurred speech, saying that everything would be all right because he would give the rich people back their money from taxes taken from the middle class, because that's socialism. Biden also explained that the bank failure was Donald Trump's fault because Donald Trump was such a bad president that everything Biden touches turns to crap. Then Biden shuffled slowly out of the room before anyone could ask him any questions because questions might spoil the reassuring effect of the slurred speech he made with his mouth hanging open. The White House then issued a statement which said, quote, the president's bailout of the Silicon Valley Bank is not a bank bailout, and this is not a statement issued by the White House, unquote. The New York Times, a former newspaper, immediately hailed the statement as a brilliant piece of postmodern literature and the White House celebrated by releasing a bright red balloon that carried a speaker over Pennsylvania Avenue repeatedly saying, it's all Trump's fault, in a very high-pitched voice because it was a helium balloon and the celebration had gotten out of hand. On the positive side, the Silicon Valley Bank's board of directors was very diverse. Some board members had given huge donations to Hillary Clinton, some to Barack Obama, and some to Nancy Pelosi. Unfortunately, none of them had any actual board experience, except one, but that was with a Ouija board, which did at least spell out the words, you are about to get a big surprise, your bank is out of money. Now, you may have heard many journalists say that bailing the bank out after it acted so stupidly could create a quote-unquote moral hazard. And you may have asked yourself, what's a moral hazard? And why don't journalists' heads burst into flame when they say the word moral? That would be both funny and appropriate. Well, a moral hazard is when rich people do something stupid and lose their money, and the government gives them your money so that the rich people dance around the room and say, hooray, now we can do more stupid things forever and nothing bad will ever happen to us because there's a moral hazard, so we get everybody's money. So basically, a moral hazard is pretty much the same thing as socialism. Now that I've explained the banking crisis to you, you're probably wondering, 
Will this affect me personally, or can I just go back to watching porn? That depends. If it's the kind of porn where you need an online subscription, you can't go back to watching it because you have no money. Because now banks all around the world have started collapsing because Donald Trump was such a bad president that Joe Biden has ruined everything. But here's a free rainbow pencil. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a pity zing It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray, hurrah. All right, we are back laughing our way through the end of days. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about sex and money, basically, because sex is sexy and money is money, and they're both the best things ever, unless you don't believe in God, and then they ruin everything. Uh, Please subscribe to my personal Andrew Clavin YouTube uh, channel. We have a a great new video out there uh, where I react to ridiculous uh, AI uh, videos. It's pretty funny. Uh, But we will send you all kinds of exclusive content there. If you ring that little bell, uh, you will get tintinitis, but uh, you'll get exclusive content, and you'll just hear this kind of ringing for the rest of your life with great exclusive content. Content like that, like what I just did. Uh, and if you leave a comment and the comment is racist and sexist and just utterly di- morally disgusting and reprehensible, we'll include it on the show because that's what we do here. Today's comment is from the Dante James show. Uh, he says, Andrew, you give me hope that I can still be successful and loved despite the fact that I'm eventually going to go uh, bald. Well, I can't guarantee that, but I will tell you what my brother told me. He said, he said, every man gets a certain amount of testosterone and some of them wasted growing hair. People are raving about GenuCell skincare. Here is Sherry from Omaha, Nebraska. She says, I have sensitive skin and I'm careful about all products. My husband bought me GenuCell bags and puffiness and GenuCell deep firming serum. I felt it working immediately. My eyes look amazing. My face feels smooth and wrinkle-free. It's not just Sherry. GenuCell has sold over a million products to both women and men across the nation. Say goodbye to fine lines, wrinkles, and even those annoying under-eye bags. GenuCell will have you looking 5, 10, even 15 years younger, just in time for warmer weather. Best of all, GenuCell guarantees results in as little as 12 hours or your money back. My talent manager, Tessa, uses GenuCell under-eye treatment. And you know what I think about Tessa. She is as beautiful as it's possible to be. And just using this stuff, she just gets more and more fantastic. Try GenuCell's most popular package for 70% off at GenuCell.com slash Clavin. You get free shipping plus a luxury beauty box containing two free gifts with every subscription. Go to GenuCell.com slash Clavin. GenuCell.com slash Clavin. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I look great, but how do you spell Clavin? <laughs> it's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no All right. Last week, uh, I talked about the fact that everything the left touches turns to crap because they don't they're disconnected from reality. They have these ideas of what things should be, uh, but they don't happen to hook up to reality and they think they can change reality. As an example, my favorite clip of the week this week was Dylan Mulvaney on Drew Barrymore's show. Uh, He's celebrating his first year of being a man dressed up as a woman. Uh, And Drew Barrymore is just so taken with Dylan's joy and self-actualization in this charade uh, that she falls on her knees before him. Here's the clip. I look at someone like you and I can't imagine anybody disliking you. Oh, please. Do you know, do you want to know, ironically, who uh, dislikes me the most sometimes? Who? Myself. Oh, me too. Oh. And, but. Now, 
of course, this was absolutely brilliant because it was simultaneously a reenactment of Drew Barrymore's famous scene in E.T., uh, where she dressed E.T. up as a woman, too. This clip, too. E.T., 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 be good. Be good. I taught him that, too. You should give him his dignity. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. All right. Clearly, uh, in the interviewing, uh, intervening years, the issue of dignity uh, has gone out the window. And I just want to say about Dylan Mulvaney, I, you know, I don't care how the guy lives. He did put out a video in which he attacked all the Daily Wire hosts except me. And I did take offense to that. Uh, you know, but I do think what he's doing is blackface, basically. It's blackface for uh, sex. And, uh, you know, I'm one of those guys who agrees with Megyn Kelly that blackface doesn't have to be a racist. I don't think it's racist for a little white boy to go out on Halloween as Black Panther, uh, for instance. But I do think that, um, you know, that kind of blackface is offensive and this is offensive to women. Now, a lot of, of, of conservatives objected to uh, Drew kneeling in front of Dylan Mulvaney. But uh, I just read a, a piece in the University of Chicago student newspaper uh, saying that I'm a misogynist uh, because I was attracted to my wife because of her great legs. Uh, and as a misogynist, uh, there is obviously nothing I'd like better than watching women grovel before men and slavishly admit that men are so much superior to women that they even make better women. Uh, than women do. Uh, it's, a, it's a fantasy of mine, the groveling. And then after the groveling, they smear each other with but tomato sauce and lick it off. That's probably too much information. All right. So the left is selling the idea that gender is a construct that we can change at will. And anyone who says it's ridiculous is hateful because that's false. They have to silence you because they have no arguments. If I were to say, for instance, that uh, someone who, a man who believes a woman is mentally ill, YouTube would censor me. They would just cut it out uh, and they would demonetize us and all that stuff. Not because YouTube has any information about this, not because they are scientists working around the clock to discover the truth. Uh, they would do it because they feel that that's nice and maybe there's some pressure uh, on them as well. And they think it's more important to be nice than to tell the truth. And that's why leftist, everything leftist touch turns to crap because they have established that idea. However, however, that's them. And I, today I want to talk about us. I want to talk about conservatives and what we believe or what I think we should believe. And so I'm going to start with explaining my personal beliefs so you can judge me on my beliefs and put everything in context. I have a Christian worldview, which for purposes of brevity, we'll call the truth. And the truth is uh, God is good, but the reasons things are messed up the way they are is that man is broken. And the atheist worldview is that there is no God and therefore man is innocent. There's nothing to sin against. Uh, an innocent man can therefore make the world better then God has made it because there is no God. So they, we, they can change everything. That's called, uh, we can call that uh, woke or childish delusion or thumb-sucking stupidity. But the truth is God is good and man is broken. And he made us for love. That's our nature. That's our basic nature. But because we're broken, we seek instead to satisfy the flesh and the ego with pleasure and power, with sex and money and other forms of power. So all the good things in life are truly good. Sex and money, success, those are all good things, but they have to be brought under the control of our true selves through love. And by putting our true loving selves in control of our broken ego selves. I know I'm simplifying. You don't have to write me with your subtle theology. I'm giving you the simplest version of this I can. Now, all that self-control costs you. Uh, you may have less money uh, because of that. You may have less sex or sex with fewer people. There may be kinds of sex you want to have that you don't have. Uh, there may be avenues of making money that you don't go down. You probably don't sell fentanyl to people. Uh, and there are pain, those are pains that you have to suffer. We call them crosses that you bear. And no one likes them. And if you don't believe in eternity, there's absolutely no reason to suffer those painful things. But if you know the truth, which is that God is good and man is broken, the sacrifice is worth it because you're aligning yourself, your soul with God, and that will make you joyful in this life and even move into an eternal life. Uh, and because God wants us to be free, um, you know, we have, we have two 
because God wants us to be free so that everyone can find these things for himself and find love because you can't love without being free. Uh, you have to choose love. You can't just be commanded to love. Uh, we, we have the difficulty of arranging things for maximum freedom without atrocity, without doing the bad things that people do. And there are two major entities of power that we do this with, the church and the state. Uh, they're not the same. Jesus told us they're not the same. He said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God. The church's job is to shape your soul in love so that it begins to control your ego and your desire. It overrides it so you become your true self. Uh, the state's job is to organize systems by which broken people can serve each other and remain free, right? So that's why we allow sin in a free society. Capitalism is a wonderful system for organizing greed so that it benefits everybody, right? And we stop it when it comes to crime, but we allow the greed because we have invented that system. It's up to you and your church to get rid of the greed. Lust remains a sin, but marriage is a system of controlling that. The state can't follow you around preventing sins. There are too many sins. Being fat is a sin. Being drunk is a sin. All those things. It's none of the government's business because you're free, right? But those are two different ways that we, we control things. Now, for obvious reasons, most of the problems center around sex and money and power because those are the things that the ego wants and that love has to control. So now we know what I think, how I think conservatives should think and how we should address our problems in the church, in the state, in different ways. Let's look at what conservatives actually believe, starting with sex. All right, we have a new sponsor, and this is the kind of thing I love. If you are ready to take the next step in your education, but you're struggling to fit traditional classes into your schedule, Grand Canyon University's online programs are designed to make earning your degree easy and accessible no matter your age or stage in life. Whether you're a busy professional looking to advance your career or a stay-at-home parent juggling family responsibilities, their online courses give you the flexibility you need to learn on your own terms. Grand Canyon University specializes in helping you fit your bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree into your busy day. From scholarships to customized scheduling, your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Why wait? If you're ready to take your education to the next level, you need Grand Canyon University. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. That's gcu.edu. Good idea. All right, what do conservatives really think about sex as opposed to what they think they should think or what I think they should think? There's an interesting piece in the New York Times, a former newspaper, by Jane Costa. Now, I know Jane a little bit, and she kind of covers conservatives uh, like Jane Goodall covered apes. You know, she kind of moves among us and tries to, to see our ways without giving up any of her uh, lefty prejudices, which is actually better than the rest of the New York Times, which has no idea what we think at all, but is always condemning us and talking about us. They really, literally do not know what uh, we think because they can't accept the fact that we have a different value st based value standard uh, that's better than theirs and theirs makes no sense. Uh, so she wrote a piece, Jane wrote a piece that said the debate Hugh Hefner won and William Buckley lost. And she talks about a 1966 debate between Buckley and Hugh Hefner, the guy who obviously published uh, Playboy, which was kind of the first uh, acceptable nude female magazine that you know guys could buy with a straight face and a, you could just walk in and buy it because you were getting it for the articles. That's what we used to say. Uh, Hefner described, uh, this is what she says, Hefner, Hefner in this debate with, um, with uh, William Buckley 
uh, described his view as anti-Puritanism. It's a response to the Puritan part of our culture. And Buckley argued that Hefner's aim was to shatter the sexual values that Buckley felt were conducive to viable existence. Uh, and he said sarcastically, he wondered if Hefner had rewritten the ancient theological tablets, the Ten Commandments. And if he had, oughtn't you claim some sort of moral authority to do so? And if so, what is that moral authority? And Jane goes on to say this. Sixty years later, in many ways, now, Hefner's view has won over the conservative view, trying to find a path that includes both defiant hedonism and the moralistic foundations of traditional Buckley-esque conservatism has emerged as a central challenge of the movement. And she talks about conservative support for things like the barstool conservative uh, Dave Portnoy, uh, which... I've, I heard him admired on the backstage show and people kind of dithered about it. And he's a guy who believes in promiscuity and abortion and all this stuff. Uh, and I think Jane has a point about this. Uh, P.J. O'Rourke recently died. He was a very funny writer, very talented. But one of his most famous pieces that conservatives liked, uh, especially in the 80s and 90s, was a piece called How to Drive Fast on Drugs While Getting Your Wing-Wang Squeezed and Not Spill Your Drink. And young conservatives love this. He said, I like to get drunk and drive like a fool. Name me, if you can, a better feeling than the one you get when you're half a, a bottle of Chivas in the bag with a gram of Coke up your nose and a teenage lovely pulling off her tube top in the next seat over while you're doing 100 miles an hour down a suburban side street. And this was part of O'Rourke's libertarian idea that freedom meant doing whatever you want as long as you took the consequences, which in this case, he said very funnily, would probably be death. So he's joking, but he's not totally joking. And this was something that conservatives loved. And they quoted with a great deal of uh, you know affection for this. Uh, more recently, we had this clown, Andrew Tate, uh, I heard a lot of kind words about him, even here at the Daily Wire, I heard some, uh, before he was arrested for human trafficking. But let's lay that aside, just talking about the stuff he said. Here's a, just a little clip of him as cut four. In their house, sitting there, bored, completely in love with me. And of course, they don't go out. They're not allowed out. Like, oh, Tate's away, so they go out with their friends. No, 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 no. You don't go to the club with your friends. I don't know what kind of bitch-ass dude is letting his chicks go to the club with her friends without him. No. You stay in the house. You don't go nowhere. You're not, no restaurants, no clubs, nothing. All right. So obviously, Tate, there's a bit of sat satire to Tate's uh, routine, you know, because guys don't want their girlfriends to go to clubs because it's not like a guy going to club. Girls are continually being hit on. And if you ask a girl, would you want your guy to go to a club where he's being continually hit on? Most guys are not. I mean, I am, obviously, but most guys are not continually hit on. You know, the girls don't want guys doing that either. But but the way he does it, always very aggressive, very much he's in control, a woman belongs to me. If you're, you're married to her, she, you own her and all this stuff. And, you know, this was incredibly popular with right-wing kids especially, but right-wing males, right? Um, in New York Magazine, a piece by Lisa Miller, she says, Tate appealed to the rural American pro-gun constituencies and to the anti-vax, anti-mask communities. He appealed to schoolboys in Sydney and working-class immigrants in the UK, to young rideshare drivers and to jet-setting tech bros. Tate's saturation was so complete that he reached into the blue villages of New York City where many boys in their bedrooms found his rude and ruthless evisceration of every sacred liberal value hilarious. Feminism, environmentalism, gluten intolerance, literature, Harry Styles, Lil Nas X, Tate assaulted all of these with pejoratives the boys themselves knew not to use. Now, I, you know, she's right about this, and I don't think conservatives can deny it. I think that we can't deny that there is an attraction to this genuinely offensive and insulting, swaggering attitude uh, toward women. This guy who called me a misogynist, he's a kid, he's a student at the University of Chicago, uh, but you know, he brought out this thing that they're always bringing up about the fact that I say that women could not have fought 
in sword fights in medieval battles, right? They'd have been vaporized, right? And he said, no, no, that's not true because <laughs> he's been taught that this is... But the thing is, people think that when I'm saying that, that I'm being like Andrew Tate, I'm saying, you couldn't win a sword fight. No, because first of all, if I lived in the Middle Ages, I'd have been a monk, right? I'd have been a scribe who would have spent most of my time being me. I would have spent most of my time burying nuns so that no one would find out that I had got, gotten them pregnant. <laughs> I'd have to kill them. You know, it would be like, it would be like, Brother Andrew, it's time for compliance. Just a minute, I have to finish digging this hole for Sister Angelica. That would have been my life in the Middle Ages. So I'm not, this is not a brag or anything. I was just thinking it's very important to tell the truth, especially in stories. Um, so anyway, why are attra- conservatives attracted to this genuinely mean and denigrating tone toward women, right? And I said this very early on when I started the show. And I first started working a lot around people who were much, much younger than me, who were like a generation younger than me. And I started to notice that the way they talked about women was very different than the way that men of my generation talked about women. Now, men and women roll their eyes at one another's picadillos, right? We all do this. Oh, women. Oh, men. You know, that's that's natural. But in my generation, we always did this with a great deal of affection. So we said all these things, oh, women are irrational, women are emotional, women do this, this, that. But we always said them with a great deal of affection. And I assume that our wives were saying the same thing about us, you know, they're gruff and they scream at the TV and they do, you know, whatever. Uh, but we basically liked each other. And, and the reason we liked each other is we were doing things for one another in our roles as men and women, right? So we knew that what we were depended on the other. If my wife wanted to raise children, she needed me to support her, and she respected me for that. If I wanted uh, you know, to have a home and to not be a wild guy and, and live the kind of life that I knew I would live uh, without her, you know, she had to make that home, and I, I was grateful for that. I, you know, I've, I've told this story before, but I remember a feminist coming to my house to dinner and literally at the dinner table turning to my wife and saying, you cook his meals, you take care of his children, you keep his house. What does he do for you? And my wife just looked at her and silently lifted her two hands to indicate the fact that I had built the world in which that was possible for her to do. It was possible for her to have her life. So we, we, you know, we laughed at each other. We rolled our eyes at one another, but we had a great deal of affection. Now, what I noticed about young men almost instantly when I came to the Daily Wire and a lot of, you know, just was even at PJTV before that, when I was suddenly talking to a lot of people who were younger than I was, they would say the exact same things that we said. Oh, women are irrational. Women are emotional. But they would say it with genuine anger, with real anger. And obviously, obviously, this had to do with feminism. That was the difference. They were raised in a feminist world. I was not raised in a feminist world. When feminism came sweeping in, I completely ignored it. I didn't ignore the fact that some women wanted to work. I was fine. What do I care? I only care about what one woman does because I only have to live and, and deal with one woman. But I didn't care about women making different choices. What I did start to see was this animosity that that it was all men's fault that women had been oppressed, which is a lie. Black people had been oppressed. They had a, they had a grudge. They, they, I thought that they were saying some rational stuff. Not women. Women were not oppressed. They had a different magisterium. You know, they, they, people say, well, women couldn't even vote. Voting was not part of their magisterium. The home was part of the magisterium. There was lots of work 
for them to do, this idea that women didn't work because they took care of the home. As I always say, go read Proverbs, what is it, 31, 32, Proverbs, you know, the one that says a woman who can find a virtuous woman, her price is far above rubies because she was running a business. She wasn't just feeding her kids. She was also planting vineyards and selling land and making clothes. And all those things were taken away from her by the Industrial Revolution. And that's when feminism really got its start. But obviously, these younger men had been lied to. They'd been told that women could win sword fights, that they don't need your protection. Keep your damn money. I don't have to have any respect for you. Why do I, you know, you're toxic. You're toxic masculinity. Why would I, why would I respect that? You know, we're just destroyed. You couldn't even make a movie in which a man rescues a woman, which is one of the things that makes men strong. I mean, yes, it is true that men are proud of the fact that they will defend women, but why should they? If women say, no, no, I, 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 could, I could beat you in any fight. You know, it's a lie. And so these kids have been lied to, and at the same time, they were still expected to treat women like gentlemen. Why should they? When women were saying, we don't want to be ladies, why should men still be gentlemen? Why? Because men are more powerful than women. And being a gentleman is something ladies need, but they don't want to admit it be under feminism. So it was all this lie. And so I get it. I get why Andrew Tate feels like the truth. It's the difference between responding and reacting, okay? When you respond to feminists, I respond to feminists largely by ignoring them and not taking them seriously. I never have. I've never believed it. I don't, I don't seriously think I've ever heard a word of truth come out of a feminist mouth. They come out with these things. In, in my lifetime, I've seen them say, oh, men and women are exact. It's un-American, Gloria Steinem said, to think that men and women are different. Now they say, oh, men can get pregnant. I, you know, please, please. You know, if I, if I lay awake worrying about that, but I respond to it, I will call out a falsehood. I will say that Dylan Mulvaney is offensive because he's doing blackface for women. I will say those things, but I'm not going to build my philosophy. Reactioning, reactionary is when you build your philosophy around the anger you feel at being lied to, all right? Being grateful and respectful of the things women do and uh, instead of swaggering around, uh, you know, is, is a way to build things. It's fear. It's fear. If you're afraid to speak the truth, if you're afraid YouTube is going to cut you off because you say things that are true and YouTube says, well, our scientists feel that that's not nice. We've studied this and it's not nice. We're cutting that off. You know, if you're afraid, you know, and you can't say, you can't say that, hey, you know, you shouldn't really kill your children in the womb because I'm, I can't say that because I'm a man. And I can't have an opinion about that. No, no. You know, Human beings are anonymous. <laughs> That's an anomaly. It's anomalous that human being, human fathers take care of their children. In nature, in the rest of the animal kingdom, most fathers do not take care of their children. Evolution can't explain this. Evolution can't explain why you know when your father is being unjust because you expect him to be just. They can't, evolution can't explain why you tell yourself that your father is being just even when he's not, right? You, they can't explain that. It is something we have learned to do spiritually through living in Christendom. It is really the Christian church and the Catholic church, to be specific, that has taught us to do this, okay? Now, that is what we're looking for. Again, we are looking to live with respect for our, our, our cohort uh, or uh, companions who are women uh, and for women to respect us and what we do. We're looking for that again. And, and you know, I, I personally would like to see uh, women en masse return to the home, but I'd also like to see businesses, uh, the computer, bring back what the Industrial Revolution took away so women can also, because, you know, taking care of a home and raising children can also be brain deadening if you don't have other things to do. But I, let me leave you with this. All right. Here's, here's the thing. There are two kinds of people in the world, men and women only two kinds of people there are. It's the only two kinds of people there are. There are men, there are women. But there are a million kinds of individuals, right? 
women are not just women. They're also individuals. Men are not just men. They're also individuals. We have different kinds of strengths and weaknesses, each and every one of us, and different kinds of desires. But society needs norms. Society lives off its norms. If drag queens vanish, if women doctors vanish, if women soldiers vanish, society will get along just fine. If mothers vanish, we are doomed. We are no longer going to be human beings. If fathers vanish, we are no longer going to be human beings. So all I would say is, yeah, a free society can afford some eccentrics, can afford some individuality, but respect the people who built the house. Respect the people who keep the ceiling on. All of it, you know? If men don't have the courage to live by their lights, if they don't have the courage to... uh, treat women with the respect for women being women, if they're going to swagger around like Andrew Tate because they're really afraid to speak the truth, then you're just going to end up in Andrew Tate's place. You're just going to end up basically on the left, accepting what the left is telling you, that there's something wrong with the relationship, the normal relationship between men and women. I, I, I think we have to have a lived conservative of love. This is what I think it is. I think laws should protect and encourage the female magisterium of the home without forcing anyone into it. That's not. Those are not hard laws to make. It is not hard law, laws to make that elevate uh, homemaking and, and respect homemaking and Uh, basically put it forward as a goal and a beautiful thing that keeps society human and alive without forcing people to do it if that's not what they want to do. It's also not wrong to not marry a woman if she's not going to give you the home that you desperately need and want. You know, you don't have you don't have to just marry a woman because she's the woman who'll talk to you. Right. You want to marry a woman who's going to give you the life you want as you expect to give her the life that she wants. I mean, this is not a revolution that's going to take place in D.C. This is a revolution that takes place when you live it, when you have the courage to speak it, and when you believe what you believe and vote the way you live. And I think that, that is the problem that conservatives have that has led them down this Andrew Tate, this stupid Andrew Tate path, uh, where we just look ridiculous and eventually will lose to a feminist vision that will cost us our humanity. With everything going on in the world right now, I like to lie awake all night and think about it on a very comfortable mattress. You probably want one to sleep on. That's why you need to check out Helix Mattress. Helix is a premium mattress brand that provides tailored mattresses based on your unique sleep preferences, or in my case, my unique staying awake preferences, such as if you're a hot sleeper, a side sleeper, or like me, a non-sleeper. The Helix lineup includes 14 unique mattresses, including a collection for your kids. I've had my Helix for a few years now. While I still am not the best sleeper, I love how my Helix fits all my wants while I lay awake all night, pondering all of life's deepest questions so that I can answer them for you. Go to helixsleep.com slash Clavin, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and find the perfect mattress for your body and sleep type. Your mattress will come right to your door for free, and for a limited time, Helix is offering up to 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for my listeners. This is their best offer yet, so hurry over to helixsleep.com slash Clavin. With Helix, better sleep starts now. And while you're lying awake contemplating the big questions, you'll be comfortable. And big questions, of course, include how do you spell Clavin? Here's how. One of the most important uh, reasons you have to know what you believe raising kids is taking care of kids, especially in a world where people are coming after your kids to indoctrinate them. There's a new book out uh, that is just climbing up the Amazon ranks very high. I thought the last I saw it was like 20 or something on the Amazon ranks. Uh, It's by two women that I respect and like very much. It's uh, called Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation. Uh, It's by Carol Markowitz and Bethany Mandel. Uh, A couple days ago, Bethany was on uh, 
uh, some podcast or something and uh, got caught out. She was asked to define woke and she blanked and it looked uh, you know silly. And so, of course, the left made a big deal out of that. Uh, Bethany handled it like absolute men. She just took took the hit uh, and I think it helped sell some books. Uh, but but we were going to talk about woke and what it is doing to children and how people can react uh, with Carol Markowitz. Carol, it is great to see you again. How are you doing? Hi, Andrew. So nice to see you. Uh, congratulations on the book. It looks like it's Thank really so uh, doing great. So I'll, I'll let you start. Uh, define woke. What's, what is woke when you talk about that? Wokeness is a leftism coupled with a forced conformity. And we go through this a lot in the book where the old leftism was also a problem. Let us not you know, joke with, with that. Um, it leftism was enforced uh, onto children in college. They were indoctrinated into the views of their professors. This was all going on for a while. But the difference with wokeness is that there's a really narrow way that you're allowed to speak about any subject. And even and especially people on the left get caught up in the woke dragnet because they didn't say the right words. They didn't use the right language. Um, so when we say woke, it necessarily includes a conformity of thought. And it's not just leftism for the sake of leftism, which again, I'm not a fan of, but it's it's a rigid way of thinking that does not allow any outside um, influence or possibility. It's only one way of thinking about any one subject. You know, it, it's really interesting. There's a, a great article about uh, how gay marriage became law in First Things. It talks about basically the intimidation, uh, the gangster-like intimidation, the exposure of anybody who didn't support it, the firing of people who didn't support it. Uh, it really is a, a system uh, of, of, of intimidation, a system of, of just bullying people into believing yeah. you know, what you want them to believe. And now it, it has reached our schools, which is an amazing, right. amazing thing. So let's let's talk about this. I mean, you, you talk about the fact that that most moms are not paying attention to politics because they're being moms. Now, you and Bethany, I think between you, you have 157 children. <laughs> like I think <laughs> she has most of them. <laughs> I know, you guys have a lot of kids, so it, it's hard to pay attention to this stuff. It what is. do you see? What are you seeing happen in schools? Schools is one chapter of our book because we trace how this is happening throughout society. But the schools chapter is obviously very important. I wrote the schools chapter. Bethany is a homeschooling mom of six. I have three children, two in public school, one in private. And what we see happening in schools was happening in colleges, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, there's so many books on indoctrination of college students and the way that this like woke virus uh, has taken hold in so many places. But it, it has come to the K through 12 space and it's really widespread. When you watch like libs of TikTok videos, what I like to say to people is like parents look at those videos and say, well, not my that's not my teacher, you know, my kid's teacher. That's some teacher somewhere else. And they believe that this is only happening in like San Francisco and New York City. And a lot of people in red states or red areas think that they're safe from this. But just because your teacher is not openly talking about being a Marxist indoctrinator on libs of TikTok doesn't mean they're not doing it. And, you know, most teachers aren't on, on libs of TikTok. So what we say to parents is that this is coming everywhere. There's no escaping this. There's only going to be putting up a fight. Um, it's it's also not like on, on the conservative side has become very popular to say 
get your kids out of government schools. Well, in a lot of places, public schools are safer than private schools for this kind of thing. In New York City, private schools are lost under this woke, you know, just problem that they that they that they're experiencing. They cannot function. They no longer are teaching kids any of the basic subjects, um, and they're just fully wrapped up in in pleasing the woke gods. Um, and public schools, you just you have more of a chance of having actual academic subjects taught. And in places like Florida, for example, the governor has made it so hard to get that woke nonsense into the public schools. And he's so careful about what gets taught there that it's safer to be in a public school. It's safer to be in a government school than it is to be in a private school. Now, just go ahead and keep bragging about the fact that you went to Florida and making, making the rest of us feel Andrew, bad. Andrew, you have an open invitation. Not everybody has a red carpet out to him, you know, like you do. I'm, I'm scared of alligators. What can I tell you? I uh, have book- yet to see an alligator. I, I think yeah, but I've you seen only more see alligators once. in New York. <laughs> That's the problem with those alligators. You only have to see them once. Uh, the book is Stolen Youth. The authors are Carol Markowitz, Bethany Mandel. You know, I noticed that you wrote the book in alternating, not alternating chapters, but you, in, yeah. you each took different chapters. You didn't actually collaborate on it. And you mentioned that Bethany uh, has her kids, is homeschooling her kids, and you're not. Now, do, do you think one of those is a better idea, or does it just ha- ha- have to do with your personal situation? It has to do with our personal situation. Okay. But also, we like the idea, and the reason we wrote the book together is that we can provide two different paths to families to look at as a model for their own lives. Um, so for me, I let my kids watch modern movies. I let them you know, read what they want. I uh, send them, obviously, again, to pu- public and private schools. I, um, I, I let them kind of immerse in the culture. And at home, we provide the foundation and the building blocks and the defense uh, against anything that I think would be a problem. Bethany pulls her kids from culture. She, you know, she'll, she'll say her kid's fa- favorite actor is Robin Williams. Um, you know, <laughs> they, they watch old movies only. She pre-reads everything that they read. Um, th- look, there are two different paths and some people are taking one and some people are taking the other. And it's important that families understand that there's not just one way. Also, what Bethany will say about it is even though she homeschools, even though she pre-reads the books, even though, you know, she doesn't let allow media into her home uh, for the kids, she still needs to take her kids to the pediatrician. And that's why we have a medical chapter in the book about how wokeness has captured the medical field. And obviously, we saw that up close during COVID where any alternate opinion was considered, you know, not allowed. And you could lose your medical license if you questioned the vaccines or or really had any any opinion that wasn't specifically on the line. Um, and so Bethany will say, like, even though she does all of this, even though she pulls her kids from culture, she still needs to take her kids to the pediatrician. So no matter how much you pull your kids out, you're still going to face this, this what we can, you know, continue to call a virus, this woke virus that has really just saturated so many different aspects of our society. You know, one of the things that is shocking to me, I I pride myself, I'm not sure this is true, but I pride myself on being the guy who invented the joke, uh, okay, uh, groomer. Uh, I'm not sure, sure, but I think I was the first person to say that. I say that I invented a free state of Florida, so. (laughs) (laughs) And and I invented the internet, but that was a long time ago. Uh, But, but, uh, the, but the fact is, the fact is, there is an element of sexual grooming yes, in the way is. these people are treating our children. I, I don't understand how that 
Why is that at the center of this? Why is there so much of this without people saying what is, uh, uh, you know, when I was a kid, cops came in and told you how to avoid these people who are now the people who are teaching our children. Uh, How did that happen? It's a number of things. So we opened the book with a history chapter on totalitarian societies and the way that they would always separate the family first. And they do that because it's much easier to indoctrinate children when they don't have the influence of the parents. And also the kids bring home the concepts to the parents. Uh, And what we're seeing right now is a really common thread with that, where they're discombobulating the kids. They're, they're, literally messing them up so that they can rebuild them, you know, with the concepts that they want them to have. Bethany wrote the sexuality chapter and she uses the word groomer. This was, she wrote that before the okay groomer discourse, but literally she uses the word grooming to mean if you introduce sexual concepts to kids early, you're setting them up to be groomed. Even if you're not, even the person introducing the concept is not the one that's going to end up grooming them, um, that this is a risk. And it, you know, we used to kind of know that porn in school libraries was something that we didn't want. And what I would say about that also is that great majority of parents still don't want that. They still don't want um, porn in their elementary school libraries. It's the insane minority of the country that's very loud, very aggressive, very totalitarian, that they push this kind of thing and pretend that it's okay. And parents need to fight back. That is the the, the message message throughout the book is it's going to take a fight. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be somebody else doing it. It's going to have to be us. You know, when you talk about the medical profession and you, you have a chapter called No Subject is Safe, mm-hmm. um, you're, you're talking about such a widespread poison, such a toxic yes. thing that these guys. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when when your governor, your terrific governor, uh, you know, bans literal porn from literal el- <laughs> elementary schools. The New York Times says he's banning books, you know. This, right. like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, I know. There used to be a time when you would horsewhip people for doing this stuff. Right. You know, and, so, and, yeah. and he has done, and again, he could be your governor too. Um, I know, I know. <laughs> could he, so he just he, ban um, the alligator? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, the, the, what he does so brilliantly is really show he kind of bypasses the media that hates him. You know, they all hate him and he bypasses them and goes straight to the people. And he says, look, these are, this is what's in the libraries. I, I, he started reading it on TV and they had to cut off his feed because they couldn't show the kind of thing that he was reading on TV. And he also, his uh, team, cause I wrote about this in my New York post column last week, but he, his team sent me a list of the schools where they found it. So it's not like, oh, it's one or two schools. Here's the list and their elementary schools and their middle schools. And here are the books that we found in this school. And here are the books we found in this school. And the idea that this is happening on a small level just is not true. And they they end up proving it. But here's the other thing. Let's say it's only five schools, five schools in all of Florida who happen to have porn in their elementary school libraries. Why are the left opposed to removing it? So what? So it's only five. Okay, let's take it out of those five. But you can't even get them to the point where they're like agreeing to that, right? It's like, it, there's just no conversation. They're trying to they're trying to minimize what's happening. But even if you minimize it, let's still not let those kids have access to porn in their school libraries. So when you're talking, I've only got a few minutes left, but what, when you're talking about your doctor is indoctrinated mm-hmm. and, and, and you're a mom, like you got to yeah. take your kids to the doctor. Yeah. What do you do? How do you fight back against this? 
It's really, that's the toughest chapter in the book. I think we provide strong solutions for everything, except it's really hard to fight back on the medical profession. Um, it, it That is going to be have to be a societal change because right now doctors are so afraid to speak the truth and that is going to cause us damage. Um, another way that wokeness seeps into the medical field is, you know, they if you have a panel of four experts and Bethany talks about this in that chapter where um, who are experts on prenatal care and they happen to be four white guys they replace them with you know a more diverse group who are not necessarily at the top of the field people are going to die because of that so i you know i would say do your best to tell the doctor what you what your values are and what you expect um and that you don't want and and, and if your doctor says like I, we want you to step out of the room so we could talk to your 12 year old like no no i'm not and that's it Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's ferocious. Where where else do you think the danger lies besides you got schools, you got the medical profession, but there are a lot of other things that kids do and that uh, moms do. Where, where else do you think the danger is? So I, I, we we talk about publishing companies, we talk about libraries. Um, every librarian might not be woke, but the libraries are ordering books according to, you know, a, a really narrow set of values. And so are and the publishers are publishing books according to that, those same set yeah. of values. You know, we, we talked about, we, Bethany and I co-wrote a, a piece in the New York post a few weeks ago about the book. And we talked about how we had a hard time publishing this book. It was uh, publishers told us we want it. Um, can you tone down the fighting? And if that's scary, this is, this is conservative publishers. If it weren't for daily wire, I don't know that this book makes it to print. Um, and that should terrify people. We're, we're already in, in like the conservative publishing ghetto. And if those publishing companies are afraid to publish a book that says parents should fight for their kids, like, what are we doing here? Yeah, no, I've got stories like this too. It's terrible. Uh, Carol Markowitz with Bethany Mandel. The book is Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation. Carol, it's great to see you and I envy you, uh, you. being in, in paradise. But uh, <laughs> but when you visit, when you visit hell, I hope you'll come and see me. It's great to talk Absolutely. to you. Absolutely. <laughs> nice to see you. You know, even if you're a first-time parent, you deserve to have peace of mind knowing that everything is taken care of when you're planning for your family. A will is not just for old guys like me or the super wealthy. A will is about so much more than that. It's about leaving behind your legacy, having your voice heard when you can't speak for yourself, and being there for your loved ones even after you're gone. Epic Will helps you to decide today how the future may go should the unexpected happen. Did you know that 50% of Americans don't have a will? I can't tell you, I can't stress enough how important it is to create one. Epic Will is here to get you started for just $119, and in as little as five minutes, Epic Will can help you create your last will and testament, your living will, and even healthcare power of attorney. Go to epicwill.com slash Clavin to get my discount code and save an extra 10% on your complete will package. With Epic Will's easy-to-use template, all you have to do is fill in the blanks. EpicWill.com slash Clavin to save 10% off on Epic Will's complete will package. That's EpicWill.com slash Clavin. And I know you're thinking, gee, that sounds important, but how do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. No E's in Clavin. I just make it look this easy. There are no easy All right, money. 
the other great uh, temptation, but also the other wonderful thing that we love, uh, like sex. What do conservatives think about money and what should they think? What, how do we build a philosophy about that? So let's, let's talk a little bit about Silicon Valley Bank, which I was joking about in the opening. Uh, Biden says he has saved the banking system. Here's clip nine. Before I uh, leave for California, I want to briefly speak about what's happening in Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. So this is total garbage. And what makes it even worse garbage is, of course, the New York Times and Politico and all the left-wing venues are selling this big, oh, what a wonderful, wise thing he has done. When he's talking about small businesses, you know, the FDIC is supposed to insure deposits up to $250,000. There were deposits at this bank uh, of, uh, let's see, from uh, Roku, uh, they had $487 million in there. Uh, Acuity AIDS had $55 million. Crypto lender Block Fi had $227 million all of which is going to be paid for by you. When they start to insure that kind of money, it is all going to be paid for by you. They are also saying, well, which banks are we going to save? We're going to save the big banks, essentially, banks that are systemically important, which means your local bank, and I have a local bank, uh, is not going to be have the guarantees that these big banks do, which means that people are going to move into the bigger banks, which means money is going to coagulate, it's going to collect in certain places, which means the government now, which which is ensuring this now has the power to tell these banks what to invest in. And one of the problems with this uh, Silicon Valley bank is they're investing in garbage. They're investing in green and they're investing in equity and they're investing in all these things that were uh, Silicon Valley projects that had no product, that had nothing to sell and had no way of making a profit. And so that's one of the reasons they went bad. But really, the way things went bad was inflation. And the inflation comes, you know, uh, David Harsanyi did a good piece about this in The Federalist. Uh, in 2021, he writes, Biden signed the $2 trillion so-called American Rescue Plan, indiscriminately sending checks to millions, even as COVID lockdowns were winding down, which goes back to the fact that the COVID lockdowns turned out to have been a mistake, right? So that was a mistake right there. Uh this was after issuing a number of presidential edicts limiting affordable fossil fuels uh, with some Republican help. Democrats would later pass a $715 billion green infrastructure bill. Uh, the Fed, meanwhile, kept rates at zero, pumping an already hot post-lockdown with billions. Now, here's what Joe Biden had to say about the inflation that was basically taking away the savings of the middle class. Cut six. As our economy has come roaring back, we've seen some price increases. Some folks have raised worries that this could be a sign of persistent inflation. But that's not our view. Our experts believe, and the data shows, that most of the price increases we've seen are, were expected and are expected to be temporary. Reality is you can't flip the global economic light back on and not expect this to happen. It was inevitable. It's always inevitable with Biden. He screws things up and it's always inevitable. It was uh, Donald Trump. It was corporate greed. It was uh, the war in Ukraine. It was Putin. It was all these things. Here's the truth about inflation from the great economist from the Reagan era, Milton Friedman, cut seven. Inflation is made in Washington because only Washington can create money. And any other attribution of an, to other groups of inflation is wrong. Consumers don't produce it. Producers don't produce it. 
The trade unions don't produce it. Foreign sheiks don't produce it. Oil imports don't produce it. What produces it is too much government spending and too much government creation of money and nothing else. This is why it matters that nobody anymore is trying to cut back on entitlements and things like that. Nobody's doing any of this reform stuff at all. So, you know, inflation is still at like 6% and Biden's saying, look, I brought it down all the way to 6%. Uh, it's, th that's ridiculous. That's crippling inflation and it's going on and on. So the banks th thought, well, there's all this cheap money around and there's no interest on it. Uh, let's, we'll put a, some of it in long-term bonds uh, that that go up when there's uh, not very much interest. Uh, and we'll invest in these green nonsense startups that everybody, the government is encouraging us to go into uh, that don't do anything. They don't solve any problems. They're not helpful. We're not in an existential climate crisis. That's garbage. I very much believe in treating our environment with respect. Uh, you know, that's obvious. But still, this is this panic is a purely a power grab. It's always an emergency with the left because emergencies make people panic and lose their common sense and also makes them willing to give up their freedom. And that's what the left is all about. So then the Fed says, well, we got to control inflation because it was really getting to be Weimar Germany stuff. It was really go it was getting out of control. So the Fed starts raising interest rates, right, which cuts back on the free money. And that's, as Milton Friedman said, that's what causes the inflation. So now people, you know, go in to get their, um, their money because they need it because things are so expensive. And the bank has to go in and get these, their money out of these bonds and lose uh, the profits that they were making off these bonds. And suddenly they don't have any money. And it is also true that this, this board of directors was stocked with big Democrat donors who didn't know what they were doing. Uh, and, you know, Biden and his mouthpiece, the New York Times, and the New York Times should just be ashamed of themselves. They really, I, really seriously, they should just be ashamed of the fact that they are now just the spokesman for, they're just the mouthpiece of the regime. The New York Times is now like a wooden dummy sitting on the regime's lap. And gosh, whatever they're dumb, you know. It's like even, wow, it's amazing. Biden isn't even moving his lips. Uh, it's not even Biden. It's the uh, intelligence community. They just mouth everything these people say. So, you know, there was a re rollback, a bipartisan rollback under Trump of some of the Frank uh, Dodd, the Barney Frank Chris Dodd bill uh, during the Trump era, which had nothing to do with this. Barney Frank and people are quoting Barney Frank because Barney Frank said that had nothing to do with it. And they're saying, oh, good. Barney Frank, that's authoritative. Barney Frank was almost single handedly responsible for the 2008 crash, which The New York Times reported at the time. He's the guy who said we should keep making these stupid home loans to people who can't uh, pay them back. And when George W. Bush said you're going to crash the economy, he said, I'll roll the dice. I'll roll the dice. Well, those stupid home loans where the banks had to take them and then they had to get rid of them. They had to sell them. So they sold them off and the banks in Wall Street sold them off into the economy. So when all those people couldn't pay back their loans, the whole economy went down with it. All of the stuff starts with the government. It all starts with the government. This, he was pushing these loans uh, when his male prostitute boyfriend wasn't running a prostitution ring out of his house. So these are the people, uh, the kind of people we're, <laughs> I'm not making this stuff up. These are the kind of people uh, we're dealing with. You know, we've got the, corru the corruption of these pompous, virtue-signaling Democrats is, is insane. Uh, now we're finding out that the Biden uh, crime family was taking money from Chinese sources and spreading it out through the family. They're investigating that, and the left is saying, how dare you? How dare you, sir? Uh, look at the fact that the poor widow of Bo Biden was getting money from the Chinese, uh, you know, and, and it had nothing to do, certainly had nothing to do with our president. What an honest man he is. So in the same way, Feminism and the lies of feminism make us angry at women. And this is something I 
constantly cautioned about to remind you that women are not feminist activists. Gay people are not gay activists. Black people are not Black Lives Matter activists. You know, you have to deal with people as they come. And those people are all worthwhile because they're all made in the image of God. So what happens is feminism makes us angry and we back this kind of mouthy anti-female rhetoric from Andrew Tate instead of saying, no, you know, we are going to have a world of male-female love that looks so inviting that everybody's going to want to be part of it. The same things happen, same thing happens with the corruption as we start to back this Ayn Rand garbage, okay? Now, I hit Ayn Rand a lot, but I always mention that she's right about one thing and she's right about money. I think she gets these ideas from Bastiat, but that's all right. She has one of her many endless and repetitive speeches from the lousy novel Atlas Shrugged is about money. It's a famous speech. And the woman, I think it is, says, you think that money is the root of all evil. Have you ever asked what the root of money is? Money is a tool of exchange which can't exist unless there are goods produced and men able to produce them. Money is the material shape of the principle that men who wish to deal with one another must deal by trade and give value for value, right? That's what money is supposed to be. Money is not the tool of the moochers who claim your product by tears. She's talking about people like in San Francisco where they're talking about giving $5 million in reparation to each black person who can claim that they, some relative of theirs was once held slaves. No, people who are dead don't get paid back by people who weren't alive at the time they, they suffered. Obviously, slavery, a great evil, but those people are all dead and you can't, that's the tragedy of life, right? So that's stealing by tears. That's what Ayn Rand means by the moochers. And then she says, there's the looters who take money from you by force. That's Joe Biden saying, pay your fair share of my crappy programs. He always says your fair share. He never says your fair share of what? Crappy programs that don't do anything but make Nancy Pelosi rich. Money is made possible, says Ayn Rand, only by the men who produce it. Is that what you consider evil? Okay, that's common sense. It's why Ayn, people love Ayn Rand. It's why people who are so angry at the corruption and the lies and the uh, you know misuse of money and the stealing of money by the left, it's why they, people get so angry and they turn to that. But of course, what we know is money isn't the root of evil. The love of money is the root of evil. Idolatry is evil and the human heart is an idol-making machine. Underneath this philosophy is a philosophy that we can trust the ego to guide us. It is the Nietzschean philosophy, and I, I'm very well read in Nietzsche. I know he's more complex than this, but it's the Nietzschean philosophy that Christianity is a slave morality that has to be gotten rid of and replaced by the great man, the ubermensch, the superman morality of the successful, the creative person. Here's a speech from The Fountainhead. I'm using the, the clip from the movie with Gary Cooper because it's more fun to listen to, but I checked it, went back to my copy and checked it against the text, uh, so I know it's, it's accurate. It's, it's condenses it, but it's accurate. It's cut five. No creator was prompted by a desire to please his brothers. His brothers hated the gift he offered. His truth was his only motive. His work was his only goal. His work, not those who used it. His creation, not the benefits others derived from it. The creation which gave form to his truth. He held his truth above all things and against all men. He went ahead, whether others agreed with him or not, with his integrity as his only banner. He served nothing and no one. He lived for himself. And only by living for himself was he able to achieve the things which are the glory of mankind. Such is the nature of achievement.
So we, we turn to stuff like this because it's so much more real than what the left is saying, but it's obvious nonsense. And the reason it's obvious nonsense is because God is good and men are broken. This is why Nietzsche could be used by the Nazis. Nietzsche was not a Nazi, but his sister was, and she used his philosophy to inspire the Nazis, and they loved it because the self is corrupt. The self is corrupt, and that's the reason you cannot entirely trust the self. Yes, you want a healthy ego. You can't, you know, when, they, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, it means you got to start by loving yourself. Your ego is yourself. It is what you are given. It is what your soul is made of, right? But it's broken. It's corrupt. We know it's broken because God is good. The world stinks. It must be us. It must be something is broken. That is what that philosophy means. So when you follow this down this line, when you are a reactionary and you follow down this line into this angry uh, selfishness, you are going to lose. You're going to lose yourself. You're going to lose conservatism. You're going to lose the argument because it doesn't even sound nice. What we are talking about is creation. And creation is something, you know, because the self will sell fentanyl, the self will sell women's bodies, the self will do all kinds of things that are capitalism. That's capitalism, but it's not going to be enough, right? We need something else. You know, the problem with the woke people, when uh, I was talking about how Bethany couldn't, you know, froze and she couldn't define wokeness, and I said wokeness is the delusion that you and your cohorts uh, have basically uniquely discovered the injustice of life, and now you're going to make it all better. And the reason that's a problem is nobody no human being is righteous and can do righteousness. The things that good people do stop evil things. Cops, firemen, doctors, they fight bad things, right? They don't do good things. The only good thing that people can do is create things out of love. The opposite of evil is creation because creation is the telos of love. And that means children. And that means inventions that help other people and make life better. For other people. Uh, that means art that is beautiful and uplifting and uh, redemptive in some way, even if it's tragic and ugly, even if it deals with the ugliness of life. Creation is the opposite of evil because creation is the telos of love. And if we don't have a conservative based on love, and I'm not using that as some, uh, you know, vague thing where you love humanity. I mean, you love the thing that you are doing and the people you are doing it for and the people you're doing it with. You know, I mean, it's love your neighbor. It's not love humanity. Nobody loves humanity. Humanity doesn't exist. It's loving your neighbor. And that means not selling them crap, not uh, selling them porn, not selling them uh, a, a woman who basically needs to go. You know, when I hear AOC say sex work is work, I think, yeah, the, your pimp will tell you the same thing. Yeah, get back to work, baby. Sex work is work. You know, that like, that's not the, that is not the world we are going to build. Creation and love, families, products, art, culture, that's the core of conservatism. Creation needs freedom, but it also needs love. And that's the stuff that's church and state. They both have to be operating at high levels. We are at a low level. We're at a nadir. If we're going to bring it back, we have to know what we believe. We have to believe what we believe. We have to speak what we believe, and we have to live what we believe. You know, I'm a man who appreciates a good, compelling character, and Ben Shapiro is a good, compelling character, and also recently spoke to a good, compelling character in the person of the world-famous actor, comedian, and eccentric star Russell Brand. He joined Ben for season two premiere of The Search on Daily Wire Plus. If you haven't seen The Search yet, it's really quite something. Ben ditches the interview format to sit down with an interesting guest for an unscripted, personal, and always entertaining conversation. Here's a teaser of Ben's chat with Russell Brand. Ben, I can smell weed right now. <laughs> right now. Are we going to just sit here? 
<laughs> ben! There's a difference between innocent and good. Ah, oh. Let me think about that for a couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the Talmud, because if it's not in there, <laughs> I want to know what the hell's going on. Uh, I, I, Can you I'm smell gonna, it? I'm not going to be the one who says that weed is kosher. I'm 20 years clean. I didn't think this is how I was going to fall off the wagon. I've with been me. with Bill yeah, Maher. Exactly. I thought it was with you and Rogan. Like, <laughs> I've been you, with you Rogan. Maher, Shapiro that takes me down. <laughs> for God's sake. So if you've never seen Ben Shapiro on weed, this is a good time to start the search with Ben and Russell Brand. It's available right now for Daily Wire Plus members. If you're not a member, now's the time to join. Season two of The Search will feature an all-star cast of exciting guests, including Ben's upcoming sit-down with Megyn Kelly. Plus, as a member, you'll also get exclusive access to all Daily Wire Plus shows, movies, upcoming kids content, and more. Check out Ben and Russell on The Search, streaming now at dailywireplus.com. So I want to make sure I make an important distinction when I talk against being a reactionary. That doesn't mean you don't respond. You don't react to them by changing who you are, but you do respond by fighting what they're doing. And one of the things they are doing, as uh, Carol was talking about, is, is corrupting our children. Uh, Joe Biden is now floating a national law uh, to let children have their bodies butchered into, um, you know, costumes, flesh costumes of the opposite sex. He says it's sinful not to do that. The Minnesota governor uh, just signed an executive order to that effect. And here is what uh, Minnesota Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan said about that. This is cut three. When our children tell us who they are, it is our job as grownups to listen and to believe them. That's what it means to be a good parent. <laughs> so, so if your child comes home and tells you he's Thomas the Tank Engine, just take him out and leave him on a train track and tell him to find his way home. Right, this is the kind of nonsense they are talking about. What are we doing? Let us bring on uh, one of our favorites. Megan Basham is here, uh, the cultural correspondent from The Daily Wire, one of our best reporters, I think, and one of our best writers. Megan, it's good to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Uh, thank you. I see you're dressed in green. I, I'm I, really tired. <laughs> I never do this because I, I hate these amateur drinking days. I'm a professional drinker, and I don't. That's not why we celebrate St. <laughs> Patrick's Day, but I'll get into that on some other segment. <laughs> All right. So I'd like to think, Megan, that the Republicans in Republican states are fighting back uh, tooth and nail uh, against this kind of insanity. I mean, you know, I don't care what adults do to their bodies. I mean, I care for them, but I, it's none of my business. It's not in my control. Children should be left alone. Children think all kinds of stupid things and they do not have. And, and you know, the left is is basically wants children not to be able to buy guns. They want people not to be able to gun, buy guns until they're 25 because they say your brain isn't finished uh, forming. But if you're seven and you think you're the opposite sex, you should be cut to pieces. What are Republicans doing? Yeah, you know, so <laughs> we want fighting tooth and nail, and a lot of times that's not what we get. We get very sort of tepid responses for a long time until there's a tipping point, and some of these leaders are sort of forced into it. And there's been some reporting on that front that I think is waking up um, Republican voters in particular to the fact that they don't necessarily have the representation that they think they have. Um, you know, that was one of the things we saw a couple of years ago with former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. That made a lot of news when he vetoed a bill that would have uh, 
blocked puberty blockers for children, trans surgeries. And at that point, people started asking questions going, what is going on when Republican governors are vetoing bills like this that should be so very obvious? Um, and at that I just, point, I just want to say, I want to say that yeah. the, the legislature there did overturn that. Sarah Hutchinson and uh, Sanders did correct me about that. That they overturned Yes, so they were it. able but, to do that. Right. But the, but governor the question was why? Why did Asa yeah. Hutchinson veto it in the first place? And a lot of people looked to Walmart because Walmart had come out very strongly against that bill. Um, there were rumors that Asa Hutchinson was sort of angling for a seat on the Walmart board. And mm. I think that was the first instance that opened people's eyes to go, what's happening here with our leadership, the people we're electing? And then we saw something very similar last year with Christy Nome. She's the South Dakota governor, very popular, has national ambitions. And she vetoed a bill on uh, women's sports that would have kept biological men out of women's sports. And there was a lot of discussion as to why she did that. And she said, I did this because I was concerned about retribution from the NCAA, that they would pull games out of the state, that we might lose jobs. But I think what got a little bit lost in that was really what was at stake for women, um, particularly young women who play in these athletics. And I saw this interview that Riley Gaines gave to um, our show, Crane & Company, our sports show. And that, for me, really crystallized how much we're not talking about uh, what risk this puts women in. And I, I just kind of want to take a minute to hear what Riley Gaines said about that. I was in the locker room, obviously putting my suit on, and all of a sudden it got dead silent. I turn around, I mean, this person's towering over every other person in the locker room, drops the clothes, full male, uh -huh. like a fully intact male with male genitalia. And almost subconsciously, you just cover. Like, Ooh, it's yeah. just a subconscious inherent feeling when you see a male with male parts watching you undress. It was like, I mean, I was, I thought I was missing something. I thought, am, is, am I like not grasping something? Why is no one talking about this? Why is a coach not sticking up for us? Why is someone within the NCAA, why were we not warned? We did yeah. not give our consent for this. You know, I, I have to tell you, when she says that, that resonates with me so strongly. Someone my age, someone from my generation looks at this and thinks, what on earth are these people thinking? How on earth does, does Joe Biden or any of these people talk themselves into the idea that a fully formed male should be in a female locker room? The threat, the inherent threat, the inherent intimidation, uh, the uh, inherent um, insult to a woman's natural modesty, not to everybody's natural modesty. I don't want women in my locker room either. You know, I mean, it's like, I, I just think it's absolutely uh, intolerable that this should become the norm. And yet, what are, what are Republicans doing in reaction? Right. And that was why I wanted to play that clip, because this isn't just a question of fairness. It's also a question of in any other circumstance, we would call this sexual harassment, quite yeah. obviously. So, right. um, so at that point, people started going, okay, why are governors like Christy Nome not just jumping at the chance to sign bills to protect athletes like Riley Gaines? And Nate Hockman at National Review, who's a great young reporter, you should have him on some time. Uh, he actually <laughs> broke this story that he started talking to people on the ground in South Dakota. And what he found was a very, a very similar situation to what was happening in Arkansas with Walmart. A very large employer called Sanford Health uh, was lobbying the governor's office. There was an actual lobbyist for Sanford Health working in the governor's office. And the thing to know about Sanford Health is it is by far the largest employer in South Dakota by a degree of almost seven. 
And when you looked up and down the ranks within the super majority of the South Dakota state legislature, what you found were not just um, people who were receiving donors, uh, donorships from Sanford Health, but people who were actually receiving salaries from Sanford oh. Health. <laughs> so, yeah, so is they this, were is, extremely when you say involved. When you say a supermajority, is this a, a Republican supermajority or just yes, a, a Republican supermajority? And you have an extremely conservative voter base there. So they're electing people with R's by their name, and they're expecting them to advance the legislative agenda that they want on social issues. And that wasn't happening. And it wasn't happening to a huge degree. Dozens of bills that dealt with these transgender issues, particularly as they applied to children, were dying on the vine in the state legislature. And the question was, why was this happening? And so that was the connection, was that Sanford Health repeatedly was lobbying to block these bills and all of these Republicans, well, I won't say all, but let's say enough to to, to kill the bills were abiding by their wishes. Um, so I spoke to Nate Hockman about that a little bit and I wanna let him, since this, I mean, he really did a tremendous job breaking this story, describe what was happening there um, in South Dakota. There are actual Sanford employees, current Sanford employees, uh, including one who's a public affairs specialist, which basically means lobbying for Sanford interests, who actually serves in the state legislature right now, which to me seems like an obvious conflict of interest, particularly because their primary source of income is coming from Sanford rather than their job as a legislature. So Sanford across the board has a lot of influence, both external to the legislature, both uh, with sort of lobbyists and other sort of activists making their, their presence known at the legislature, but also literally with the Republicans who are supposed to be representing the people of South Dakota themselves. So what, what I, when I saw Christy Noem, I think it was Tucker, just took her apart and she went on his, his show uh, when she backed down on this. I just thought like that was, that was a, an actual presidential uh, possibility. Christy Noem was actually had the chance to become vice president or president eventually just thrown away that she will never become president because of that. I mean, she'll never get over that. Just like Mike Pence has never gotten over things that he backed down in, in, in uh, Indiana. Do the re voters react to this? I mean, do the voter, you know, obviously these companies have a lot of power, but do the voters have any voice at all here? Well, and I think that that was really what um, it started, like I said, a little bit with Asa Hutchinson, but I think here in South Dakota is where it crystallized for a lot of people that we have, um, a serious divide within the Republican Party, and we have a serious difference of philosophy in how we're going to advance the agenda going forward. There are very old school Chamber of Commerce types who think that what it means to be a Republican is to back business interests. But as businesses have drifted, particularly big corporations, we're not talking about small business, but big corporate interests have gone so far left. And in particular, in the case of the Sanford Health, it's not just that they make a lot of money off transgender surgeries and so they're advancing their financial interests. They're also very uh, closely tied to these social groups like the Transformation Project that are very LGBT proactive. And so you now have really left-wing, radical left-wing social issue groups that are tied to these corporate interests. So what does the Republican Party do? How does it reorganize itself so that it is addressing the interest of its voters and not doing what seemed so natural to it for decades, which is say, we're pro-business, we're pro-jobs, so we're going to back these companies because we want the jobs in our state. We can't really think that simply anymore, I think. And that is why you're seeing all of these questions, because the previous 
assumption of voters was, hey, I'm going to vote for the guy with the R by, by his name, and he's going to make sure that uh, the towering figure male does not walk into my daughter's locker room. <laughs> and they're finding that that's not what's happening, that they don't actually have representation. And I don't think you see that kind of divide uh, from Democrats. Very often, um, they will back the will of their voters, even when it's detrimental to them in some cases, and they have a tough time defending it. You don't see that from Republicans. And so suddenly we are having very much of an intramural, you might say, debate within the party. Yeah. One of the things I think the Republicans did not notice, and this is the kind of thing that politicians tend not to notice because they follow the money, but our economy has completely transformed itself. It used to be a manufacturing economy. It's now an information economy. And the difference is spectacular. I mean, if you have to put a truck together and move that truck into a place and pay that Pay, get people to pay you for that truck and fix that truck, you are basically wedded to reality. You are wedded to the reality of how things work, of how pe what the people who buy that truck want. If you're just dealing in little sparkles and information and things that you know people like, uh, you're not really wedded to reality in the same way. So, I mean, people uh, like to feel good about themselves. They like to feel, feel virtuous about themselves. That's how businesses now run and make their money off those kinds of feelings. It's a different world. You cannot just support these things. They've all gone left because they're not wedded to reality the way businesses used to be. Do you fit, are you hopeful at all that the Republicans can be reached? Uh, it's hard when you're going up against this much money. Well, I mean, I think we are starting to see some pretty um, stark examples of, uh, let's say, the new guard of the new right. You're seeing Ron DeSantis say, we are not going to operate this way with Disney. Now, to be fair, he's dealing with a slightly different situation in that there's a much larger, broader economy in Florida than there is in South Dakota. So there's a little bit more diversity as far as you know where these corporate interests are. But what you are seeing is some of these governors say, no, we are no longer going to just go ahead and assume that we have to have friendly relationships with these businesses. And so we have seen Ron DeSantis say, we're going to penalize you if, if, if you bring social issues to bear against the wishes of our voters and try to influence policy in a way that circumvents the legislative democratic process, then we're going to go ahead and penalize you right back. And yeah, there's yeah. a lot of philosophical question. You're seeing him, you know, take some hits from old guard conservatives asking, is this the right way to use executive power? And uh, to me, I like to see this debate because the bottom line is, yes, this is a way that voters have been cut out of the process and that has to be addressed. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, it's really good reporting, Megan. It's really an interesting, interesting story. If Republicans don't figure this out, there aren't going to be any Republicans. Right. Uh, Megan Basham, she is a terrific cultural reporter. If you don't have a reader's pass, if you're not listening to Morning Wire, uh, you're missing out. She's great. And it's always good to see you, Megan. We'll see you again. Thanks so much. Always good to be here. All right. If you look out your window and there's a tremendous darkness winging its way toward you, that is the Clavenless Week. And it is coming toward you because you're not a subscriber. You should be. Go to dailywire.com slash subscribe. And if you use code Claven at checkout, you'll get two months free on all annual plans. If you know how to spell it right, it's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's uh, in Claven. Uh, but, but there will be a members block for those of you who are members. So it's not quite the darkness is not coming quite as quickly. And even for those of you who are not members, just out of charity, the kindness of my heart, the sort of Christian love I've been talking about in the show, we will first solve all your problems with the mailbag. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even want to know what that was. 
uh, from, from Sandy. <laughs> Hello, Drew. I heard you last week talk about Shakespeare channeling his work from God. I would like to hear more of what you think about people who claim to channel. I am a Christian Protestant. When I ask ministers this question, I usually get a negative response as well as a look of unbelief that I needed to ask. Uh, artists uh, get what they get from without, not from within. I mean, it is experienced through, it comes through them, so it has their mark on it, but I, you receive uh, inspiration. That's why it's called inspiration. That means breathed into. You are breathed into by what used to be the muses. Uh, I don't know uh, how that works exactly, but it definitely is inspiration. I've had experiences. Every every good writer certainly has had experiences. Uh, I remember writing one of my first crime novels where I had to have a body buried in cement, and I thought, I really don't know how you would do that. What would that mean to have a body buried in cement? Would it rot, and then the cement would fall in and all this? I was at a party, and a guy sat down next to me uh, and he said he was in the construction business, and I laughingly said, uh, how would you b- bury a body in cement? And he actually was a mobster and knew exactly how to do it and explained it to me. I used it in my novel. That sort of thing happens because you are getting, you are receiving material. And that, to me, uh, is why the sensitivity writers who say they are fixing your material so you're not insulting anybody, uh, my muse has a response to that. My muse says, bugger off and die. Now, I would never say, I'm a lovely person, I would never say anything, but my muse is a wild thing. And uh, she basically says, you can go uh, kiss her kazoo because that's not the way this works. Uh, uh, Yeah, so definitely channeling and definitely from a godly source if you're doing it right. Um, And, um, you know, I don't think it's it's not like it's not like you definitely are what you say comes directly from God. It goes through you and so it can get messed up. That's what people are like. Uh, from Anonymous, hi, Drew. I'm 20 years old and I'm in a relationship with a truly wonderful guy. Uh, we've been dating for two years and have seriously discussed marriage. He checks so many boxes, Christian, conservative, very kind, considerate. However, one issue I've had throughout our relationship is that he isn't as intelligent as I am. I understand that sounds conceited, but it is objectively true. My question is, can a relationship in which the woman is measurably more intelligent than the man be successful? Thank you for all you do. First of all, I want to congratulate you and commend you for asking the question because I think it is a serious question. And anybody who tells you it's not a serious question is mouthing virtue, uh, you know, signaling nonsense. Of course, it is a serious question. Um, But there are different kinds of intelligence. And I know that sounds, you know, pat, but it actually is true. And the question is, I I think that as a Christian lady, uh, you are hopefully, and I think as a smart lady, uh, you're hopefully going to give your husband a leadership role in your family. I think that's important for men. I think it actually turns them into men and it thereby gives you a better marriage than you would have otherwise. And the question is, does he have the kind of leadership intelligence uh, that... is a combination of humility and sacrifice uh, where you do things for the good of the people you lead. And I suspect he does from the way you describe him in that. But just, just to give you example, an example, I, I know almost nothing about money. I mean, I've made an awful lot of money in my life, but if it were left to me, I would be living in a dumpster. My wife is quite smart about this. So in my leadership role, I consign her to that, uh, to, to that role, you know, and I know that's not the way you, it usually works in a marriage, but I'm an artist and I'm different than a lot of people. So that's, that's what I do. Uh, so that's the kind of leadership that actually doesn't depend on, um, on intelligence per se, it depends on humility uh, and uh, 
a sense of the good of the whole, the good of the entire uh, community, the entire household in this case. So that's what you have to decide, really. And um, and don't rub it in and don't tell him you're smarter than he is. And uh, yeah, should you play dumb occasionally? Occasionally you should play a little dumb. Uh, <laughs> I'll get letters about that, but it's true anyway. Uh, but yeah, no, I think that that's the important thing. Can he uh, act as the head of the household? And I think he sounds like he can. He sounds like a good guy. Uh, from Orion. Hello, Mr. Clavin. I'm sure this question has been asked a few times already, but I might as well ask, why as Christians should we advocate for the death penalty when we should cherish all life, no matter their crimes? I personally am not against the death penalty, but get a lot of pushback from some people I know. Also, if you don't mind my weasel, I'm not going to let you do it. have another question. <laughs> um, yeah, that's different. Um, the death penalty. Uh, you don't have to believe in the death penalty or not believe in the death penalty to be a Christian. The question is, what do you think you are going to accomplish? Uh, the reason we cede this, the simple reason that we cede power to a government at all is that they promise to stop the endless chain of violence in failed states like Afghanistan, where tribes are killing each other over a rape that supposedly happened 400 years ago, because that's the way endless violence takes place until the law takes over, right? That's the stories of Orestes in the Greek plays, um, that that once we, we cede some of our freedoms to the government, so it will do justice for us. If the government doesn't do justice for us, if it does George Soros instead, uh, then it loses its credibility and it loses its legitimacy and it loses its authority. It has to deliver justice. So the question is, do you believe that the death penalty can deliver justice to the people who are the victims of the crime, namely the survivors usually in this case, um, or, or does it not? And I think that then... Still, I think the American system of the death penalty is unforgivable. I don't think we can use it. I don't think you should kill a person 20 years after he committed a crime. He's not even the same person anymore, I think. But I, I have put forward an idea that there is a specific uh, death penalty court that completely reinvestigates the crime after the conviction. And in 365 days, if they can't find uh, any kind of mitigating evidence, you're put to death. And I think that that is fairer and more merciful. But if we're not going to do that, we don't have to do it. And if if we can ensure that people who are put away for life stay away for life, it doesn't really ma matter to me. But I think that basically, uh, I think that the people who are the victims of the crime should have that option, basically, should be able to lobby for that if they think that's the only way they're going to get uh, justice. But it's not a Christian matter because there are more other mo ways that are equally moral to bring justice. And that's what you're doing. You're trying to bring uh, justice to the society. Uh, Make sure the government is bringing justice to the society so they're legitimate. From Hannah, uh, first I would like to thank you. Your work has helped convert me to conservatism and inspired me to recommit to my Christian faith. Cheers to another toaster in heaven. This I had to edit this letter because uh, it's so long. But my question concerns my boyfriend. We met in seventh grade, dated in high school, remained friends while we attended different colleges and are now dating again and want to get married to each other, of course. He is a very kind, supportive, and intelligent man. And if soulmates exist, he is certainly mine. My recommitment to religion is fairly recent, and as such, we have not discussed the role that religion will or should play in our lives. About a year ago, he claimed no belief in God, but now he says that he does not really know what he believes. A uh, recent occasion, he told me he might try going to a Catholic church. He enjoys attending church when he visits his family. I do not want to force my beliefs on him, but I know that I want to raise my children in a faith-based household and would like him to be an example of a strong, faithful man for our children. I fear that if I pose an ultimatum by saying that I want to marry a Christian or Catholic man, it will only lead to resentment and drive him further from true belief. But I'm scared that if I don't say anything, he will never come around to it. Thank you for all the work that you do, and I hope to hear your thoughts on this matter. Apologies for such a long note, warm regards. Um, yeah, another your problem here is communication. Um, you know, this is if this is the guy you think is your soulmate and the soon-to-be partner of your life, you've got to learn to be able to talk to him without 
pushing them around, without giving them ultimatums, uh, but simply by communicating things that are on your mind, right? I mean, this is something that you do. Sometimes you have to talk for five minutes before you get to the point just to say, I'm not trying to force you into a decision, but these are things that are really important to me and I want to know how you feel about it so I can think about it as well and we can discuss it back and forth as people who might be lifetime partners, right? That's important. It really is important. I mean, I know that all the women's magazines talk about this, but that doesn't mean it's wrong per se. Uh, I think it is important to discuss it. And I think that that's what you have to do. You have to discuss it in an unthreatening, unultimatum uh, way, but let him know where you're, what you're worried about and what you're thinking about and see what he says. If he's your true soulmate, I don't think you're going to have a problem uh, in the long run, but you may take some time and patience and, and leaving him alone to find his way. But you got to talk to him. I got to stop there. If you're not a member, so the Clavenless Week is upon you, bye. I'm sorry. I know the deaths. It's awful. It's, oh, God, the bloodshed. I can't even think about it. However, for the rest of you, come over to Members Block.